Hello everyone, uh, this is Thomas from the former Double H Double Bill, I'll do another intro here for a bonus Patreon podcast that's been unlocked from behind the paywall, as we've been doing for uh, the last, you know, few weeks, every other week I've been putting out something from uh, the Double H Double Bill Patreon in the gap between Double H Double Bill ending and our new show coming out, and I want to say this is the last one we're going to be putting out for that gap, because come uh, July 11th, we will be premiering our new show, which I might as well just reveal everything here. The upcoming new show is called Cinema to the Letter. Yes, Cinema to the Letter, which will be hosted by myself and my new co-host Brian, um, who some of you might have heard if you're a Patreon subscriber. You would have heard him on the uh, little Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse review where we talked in a bit more detail about uh, Cinema to the Letter, but I might as well um, reveal to everyone here, the free listeners, what the new show is going to be. So as I mentioned, Cinema to the Letter is going to be starting July 11th, and uh, it'll be a miniseries-style show where there will be uh, six episodes, and the six episodes for each miniseries are tied to a letter in the word cinema. That's right, it's an acronym, baby. We all love them acronyms. The first episode would be go with C, which would be C for classic. So a classic movie released prior to 1980 is what we decided on. Uh, then an I for indie, so a smaller independent movie uh, that isn't attached to a studio, has a smaller budget, like $10 million or lower is the cap we kind of put on it. Uh, then the N is for new, so a newer movie released within at least this recent decade, from 2020 to now, any movie kind of like that recent uh, would be the third episode. Then the fourth episode would be E for Egregious, which will be our bad one. We're still going to be covering some bad movies here when we ever do these miniseries. The E for Egregious will be the bad one within the miniseries topic. Um, then the M is for Masterpiece, and we decided to make Masterpiece something more modern, not quite new, but modern era, which would be from 1980 through, you know, like 2019, roughly. So a movie released within that time that fits the parameters of the miniseries. And then finally, A for Atypical. So a weirder one or an underrated one, uh, not one you would typically think of, hence atypical. Uh, so that'll be the miniseries format, C for classic, I for indie, N for new, E for egregious, M for modern, and A for atypical. Um, and we'll be cycling through different miniseries. But our first miniseries that'll premiere on July 11th will be for blockbusters. Yes, big, you know, it's a summer movie season. Blockbusters are all in bloom. So you all get to listen to myself and Brian. But for the blockbuster movies, we have all the films selected. So I'll just tell you now, RC for classic, as picked by our patrons. Once again, for the $1, you get to, you know, either listen to bonus podcasts. We'll also be putting out with Brian over there or uh, vote in polls for, we'll definitely have at least one movie per miniseries. You all get to pick over there on a poll. And uh, the C for classic will be Jaws, arguably the movie that created the summer blockbuster in its own right. Uh, they picked Jaws, so the 1975 Steven Spielberg classic will be our classic C for classic first episode of the blockbuster miniseries. Then I for Indy is going to be Blair Witch Project. Yes, the 1999 film that cost very little money and ended up making a big splash in summer of 1999. That'll be our I for Indie second episode of the Blockbuster miniseries. Then the N for New, uh, you know, Oppenheimer's coming out, so we're going to be covering Christopher Nolan's prior film to Oppenheimer, Tenet. 
Yes, the very divisive uh, Tenet, which I'll just say one of us, who's a co-host of the show, really likes Tenet. The other one has very mixed feelings on it. So uh, there'll be a lot of fun discussing that as our newer blockbuster film. Then for a E for Egregious, uh, we are going with Van Helsing. That's right, the 2004 infamous sort of horror-tinged action film from Stephen Summers. Uh, big disaster. Very curious to cover that one as our E for Egregious. Then M for Masterpiece will be Who Framed Roger Rabbit from 1988, one of the more beloved blockbustery comedy, noir, all the different genres that particular movie encapsulates. Uh, we'll be covering that as our masterpiece. And then A for Atypical is Last Action Hero, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie that was an infamous bomb in its day in 1993, but uh, you know, 30 years later is widely celebrated by a lot of people. Uh, so we'll be covering those. That's once again the rundown. Blockbuster miniseries. Our C for Classic is Jaws. Our I for Indie is Blair Witch Project. Our N for New is Tenet. Our E for Egregious is Van Helsing. Our M for Masterpiece is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And finally, our A for Atypical is Last Action Hero. So yeah, we'll be releasing those from July 11th. We'll start and it'll go through to, um, to August 15th. That'll be uh, when that miniseries is released. Then we'll take a bit of a break uh, through August and then into September. Near the end of September, we'll put out our new miniseries after that. So keep that all in mind. This will be starting on July 11th. Talk Film Society on this particular podcast feed. You'll be hearing Cinema to the Letter, which uh, we have some new artwork and we're going to be changing the socials. The plan is to do it as Cinema to Number 2 Letter. So Cinema Number two letter. That'll be the at for all the different socials I'll be changing to. That hasn't been taken as of when I'm recording this. Hopefully it isn't in the couple days before this comes out. Uh, so yeah, prepare for Cinema to the Letter. That'll be the new show. Hope you all enjoy it. And also, yeah, Cinema to the Letter, that's also the plan for the Patreon. Uh, Patreon.com slash Cinema to Letter. When, you know, where we'll also be putting out, like I mentioned, monthly bonus podcasts, and you'll get chances to vote for, you know, individual episodes we do still and stuff like that. And speaking of the Patreon, over there, you should be able to hear some recent bonus content if you join up for the $1, including uh, Brian and I talking about Across the Spider-Verse, as I previously mentioned. Uh, we did a spoiler review of that. Um, then also, uh, we'll be doing, in the time between when this bonus podcast comes out, um, and the Cinema to the Letter premieres, uh, over on the Patreon, you'll be able to hear Brian and I talk about, uh, the Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, that'll be coming out, uh, shortly, uh, you know, like I said, right before, the uh, the regular show, Cinema to the Letter premieres, and then also there's a bonus podcast I put out there that's been in the back burner for a while, that was of myself and my father, uh, talking about Pulp Fiction. I explained a bit more in detail that this was uh, something I recorded back in November of 2021 and planned to make a little mini-series of, but it hasn't really happened yet. Uh, but that audio that I've been saving up for about a year and a half is up there of myself and my dad talking about Pulp Fiction, a little fun thing. And that's all accessible to you along with being able to vote in polls for stuff like Jaws uh, that... That is our you know, first episode of Cinema to the Letter, the subject of our first episode of Cinema to the Letter. Um, all that stuff is available to you if uh, you just contribute the $1 over at patreon.com slash cinema to letter. Uh, but now, to introduce this bonus podcast, um, this was one that we put out in August of 2022, 
And it's one of my favorites, honestly, I ever did with Adam. Um, it is uh, us discussing not a movie technically, but a filmed version of a stage musical. Because Adam infamously is not usually a big fan of musicals, but he loves Phantom of the Opera. So we'll be covering... Um, that 25th anniversary recording. This is us talking about that. And also, really worth it just to hear us talk about as a little... This is almost a double-edged double on its own, right? Because we talk about that one a lot, obviously. But we do spend a fair amount also talking about Love Never Dies, which, if you don't know, was the sequel Andrew Lloyd Webber did around like the 25th anniversary of the original play. That was a huge disaster. There's a filmed version of it. We both watched that as well, and we talked about it, and we trashed the fuck out of that very bad musical. So it's a bit of a double-edged double bill, and it's all right, but this was honestly one of my favorite ones we ever did, and I thought it was a lot of fun to do. And uh, yeah, here is that bonus podcast for you all. Sing for me, my angel of music. Just call me angel of the morning, angel. Just touch my cheek before you leave, baby. I've clearly been worshipping the wrong deity of song. Hello, Edgelords. Welcome to this month's bonus podcast. Yes, you have contributed your dollar and are now at the point of no return. Would you say they're past the point of no return? Perhaps. I might say that. Uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody, we're in a musical mood here as we are doing another media discussion and a very interesting subject. Uh, we are doing a media discussion about a filmed stage show, uh, which would be uh, The Phantom of the Opera at the Royal Albert Hall, which was the 25th anniversary recording of uh, the musical uh, that was uh, started in on the West End, October 6, 1986, and then moved to Broadway. Uh, and before we even get into that show, Adam, I'm curious because we've never talked about our relationship with less the movie theater and more the theater itself. Um, what, what's your relationship with sort of like stage productions in general? Uh, I, I was in drama class in high school. You know, I have to do a play every semester. And even if you tanked the class, as long as you were in the play, you passed. I never tanked the class. I loved the class, but I would just do that anyways, just to be sure. So, I mean, I've done a couple of them here and there. I've seen a couple. Uh, you know, I've seen the, fa- the Phantom itself three times, all in different places. Like I saw it at the original Pantages in Toronto. I saw it here at the Fox Theater, and I saw it down in Florida. I forget where. Which, that one was crazy. The Phantom rode an alligator, and they had shotguns, and that was nuts. It took a lot of bath salts. That's how he got his scars, actually. That's the origin story. <laughs> thousand percent. <laughs> and listen to the music. <laughs> <laughs> it was all banjo. It was crazy. Bang, 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 bang. Yeah, right. Exactly. I've seen some. It's not necessarily like something I'm against to. It's just I never think about it. I never think like, oh, maybe I'll go see a play or what's playing at the local theater or something like. So I always enjoy it. It's just something I never do. Yeah, I mean, I've 
grew up a bit more adjacent to uh, sort of theatrical staging, mainly because my sisters, when they were younger, took dance classes. So I would go to, like, the Strass Center, which is the big place where they, when, you know, shows tour around, they'll actually play down in Tampa. That's probably where I saw it. Yeah, that's probably where I saw it. And uh, at that place, like, every year we'd have to, like, see every kid dance for, like, the solid, like, two-hour block of show. Which, which just, like, you just wait around, like, oh, there's my sister. Several minutes pass <laughs> until you see her again. That kind of thing. Um, but at the same time, like, as I got older, like, in high school, I, I definitely was friends with theater kids, and I respect a lot of stuff about theater. But at the same time, like, I, I, I'm lucky in terms of being able to see certain things. Like, when I was a teenager, we took a trip to New York, and I did see some Broadway shows like Wicked um, or The Lion King or weirdly, the Billy Joel musical moving out, uh, which is literally just, like, a Billy Joel cover band singing while dancers interpret <laughs> what's going on. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> My mom really wanted to see that, and she took us to Wicked and Lion King. She's like, you're fucking seeing this. Like, all right, I, I guess. And it's like, whatever. But anyway, um, it, at the same time, with, like, the, the stage shows, there's always that weird thing of, like, I hear about, like, big Broadway productions and all this other stuff that, you know, it's it's inherently, like, because it's not a filmed thing, because that works, you know, it's so much about, like, being in the room with the actors is, like, whatever happens. Some, you know, something could go wrong, something could be different on each night. It's inherently something that, like, has an exclusionatory factor to it, especially if you're not wealthy enough to see, especially, like, big Broadway productions or whatever. So I definitely grew up a lot more interested in what we're talking about today, which a lot of the, the theater kids call a pro shot which is a professionally shot version of, like, an actual staged production. Like, some of my favorite musicals I know because I watched versions of that. Like, I love, like, the first version I saw Sweeney Todd was one of those, with, like, Angela Lansbury in it. And then, like, Into the Woods, I saw, like, the theatrical, like, sort of filmed version of it. So I love these pro shots, because I think it gives people the opportunity to see something they might not be able to see in normal cases. Uh, yeah, I agree. Especially about our subject matter tonight. I, I've seen other ones that are like almost distracting. Uh, like the camera you could tell is like right on stage, right in the actor's faces, swirling around them and stuff. To me, that'd be distracting. This one uses a lot of wide angles and mm-hmm. wide shots and stuff. And it, it really works as opposed to something I'm sure we'll talk about, but the sequel. Oh, we have to have a sidebar, an extensive sidebar for <laughs> the sequel. <laughs> Cause we both watched that. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, like what I like about a pro shot is like, it's supposed to give you, I think different angles of the audience. That's what the ones that work the best. Like give you different angles were like for the audience. Like, Oh, if you're off to the side, if you're up in the balcony, if you're in the way in the back, it gives you those different perspectives. But at the same time, they're also, it is interesting to see like the ones where it's just like close up on an actor's face in a way that nobody can really experience, even if you're like in the first row. So having those different angles, I think it's what makes a pro shot so special. Right. I agree. And also having, you know, like you in comparison to when it's right on the actor's faces, like you'd have to be in the front row or even sitting on the stage. The problem inherently with that is you can see all the seams of the makeup. You can see the microphones, you can see all that stuff. And it really sort of takes you out of it. It's distracting almost. Or, or, or say you could see a digital stage, which might be, say, a, an issue with this particular production. Yeah, but it didn't really bother me that much, to be honest. But also, I've seen the thing in person three times, so it's like, it's not surprising me. You know what I mean? Right, and though for the record, I should also say, I have seen Phantom as performed at the Straz as well, and I was literally right underneath where, like, the chandelier drops. Uh, in the oh, 
Oh, fancy me. That's not close to me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, let's get into, so, uh, Phantom of the Opera, obviously, as I mentioned, started in 1986, and this is the 25th anniversary production that came out uh, October 2nd, 2011. It was filmed, you know, around that time, and also was, like, uh, both released on, like, DVD and Blu-ray, but also even put out in theaters via Fathom Event, which a lot of these productions tend to be, like, screened that way theatrically. Um, and this is a very popular play in terms of it's the longest running show in Broadway history um, and it was the first to celebrate 10,000 performances which is like so obviously rare and is the second highest grossing Broadway production behind The Lion King so I mean very popular and I'm very curious Adam with you uh, if longtime fans would be aware that you're not a fan of musicals usually not a big fan of them (laughs) not one bit I fucking hate them (laughs) right which is why I'm very curious as to what separates Phantom of the Opera to you. Well, one I saw when I was a little boy the first time. Like, I was really young. So, and I went with uh, my mom and an uncle of mine who's no longer around. So, it's always kind of had that family thing to it, and plus good fond memories and stuff like that. Um, so, I think that's part of what endeared it to me. But also, you know, as I'm sure longtime listeners of the show know, also, I'm a genre nut. I love the horror genre. I love. You know, even gothic films and things like that. And The Phantom has elements of that sprinkled throughout it. I mean, The Phantom is, you know, obviously there's the old movies during the Universal period, The Phantom of the Opera and all that stuff. But even in this play, he's a horrible murderer. And, you know, he's got the mask and he wears all black. He almost looks like Dracula. And all. I just thought he was such a cool character uh, when I was a kid. I loved the look of the mask, all of that stuff. So it's just kind of always stuck with me. Plus, I mean, The Phantom sort of, song itself you know the main theme the fucking slaps it's so loud and bombastic especially when you're there and also the chandelier bit when you was in the in when i saw it live and the fact that raul dove into the stage through a trap door that you know as a kid you don't know that's there you're like wait where the fuck did he go it was just so cool it was so exciting to see it it sort of always endeared itself to me that's why like i've seen every iteration uh even to the shitty barely based on it robert england thing the joel schumacher version which are our butler the you know i've seen every single version of this and i just i'm a sucker kind of for every version for in for one reason or another uh bad or good um that being said of the phantom of the opera, not Love Never Dies, uh, Rod. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting with just the, the source material in general. It's the, I believe it's Gaston Leroux novel. Yes. That, right, that be, eventually became, like, various different film versions. Arguably the most famous one being, like, the 1925 Lon Chaney Sr. version. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of, like, the image that captivates. And I always was, like, as a kid, I loved the Universal Monsters, like, the, the basic, you know, your Frankensteins and all that, but weirdly, the Phantom, it, it's so confusing with the Universal Monsters thing, where you would figure that that would be the version that they sort of claim, but apparently it's more like the Claude Rains version from, like, Correct. the 40s. Right, which is weird, because I, would you argue that, like, the, that sort of, like, that Lon Chaney Sr. one is, like, the most famous sort of image that's outside of maybe the musical, right? I mean, I think without a shadow of a doubt. The Lon Chaney image, not only is it so famous because, you know, the most famous version of The Phantom and everything, it's also one of the most famous movie makeup reveals ever. Yeah. If not the. I mean, it's still one that puzzles people to this day. I mean, I know, like, sure, makeup experts know how it's done. And I've even, like, heard interviews with, like, Rick Baker talking about it. And he knows how it was done. He just can't believe they figured it out back then. 
how to do it. And it was Cheney himself who did it, obviously. Which yeah. Was oh, yeah. At the time, yeah. And it still holds up, too. It's still creepy. Yeah, I, I like rewatched the, that movie in anticipation of us doing this, and despite it being like an older silent film, it's still incredible how much like of that atmosphere still lingers. Mm-hmm. And even and like, it's no tragic, what... right? He basically commits suicide at the end. The Phantom, you know, where right. he raises his hand like he's got something. They all recoil, then he does that really creepy laugh and smile. Yeah, like it's it's amazing. Right, and it, even just, like, the grand scale of it, like, that original set and also their stuff, like, there's a reason why that has, like, endured now, like, nearly a hundred years later to this point, and, like, that version, and that's kind of been, like, the specter that's haunted, as it were, um, the, the Phantom of the Opera, until eventually, like, this version, obviously, like, just ignited so much, as from Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh, who was like a big famous person in the theater world? With I know a lot of theater kids. Uh, it's he's a very divisive figure. Where you either kind of like love his kind of silliness or you despise it. It's kind of that thing, and I think it, a lot of it has to do with like he's basically kind of like the Michael Bay of musical theater in terms of like his shows go bombastic and big and massive, which is also credit to I believe it's Cameron McIntosh is the producer who also produced like Les Mis, which isn't. Um, a Andrew Lloyd Webber show, but he'd also produce Cats, a, a famous Andrew Lloyd Webber show, which we talked about the film version that we loved so dearly on the main feed show. Best movie ever. Right, best movie ever, yes. <laughs> Some people uh, might know Andrew Lloyd Webber from the South Park episode, where he dude bros down with Randy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they're, right. They're gonna fight. <laughs> right, of course. Uh, but yeah, this was like sort of his big claim to fame given like, I think that's what works about this show, honestly, is that at the same time that it's like a big theatrical Broadway production, it is also like even more so than the average Broadway production, like a spectacle. Like you see so many shows that have come in the wake of this one that kind of try and recreate with like, we got some like big gimmick, like there was a King Kong musical a couple of years ago on Broadway where they had like a giant ass puppet King Kong. And it's like, look, it's here. Come see it. Spoilers. No one saw it. Because that show horribly bombed. But, like, it's sort of been, like, this was one of the big examples of, like, a big, bombastic, huge musical that everyone was kind of trying to, to follow because of its, like, spectacle. Yeah, I mean, Christ, look at even the Spider-Man Into the Dark One, where the whole thing was spectacle. I mean, it's just, yeah, they've been trying, I, I absolutely agree. So, I mean, I'd argue probably, like, what, like, Wicked is another one that really kind of took it and ran with it and was successful. Right. But, you know, for the most part, yeah, this is... The one. Right, yeah, there's sort of is like one in a generation that sort of pops up, but at the same time, th- most of the other ones that have been successful aren't running as long as The Phantom still currently is. Mm-hmm. And do, do, why, why do you think it like really appeals to like mass audiences as much as it does? I think it's just the love story, the tragedy of it all. Probably for the same reason like Cats ran as long as it did, you know what I mean? Where it's just, it's one of those things where if it's in town, you're like, oh my god, Phantom of the Opera... You know, whether you theater or into it or not, you're like, it's an event. you got to go see it. It's like a huge deal. It's one of those shows or, you know, movies or something like that, like, if, or a band. If you get a chance to see it, if it's in your town, go see it because it's such a huge thing in the cultural zeitgeist. Like, it's just that big of a deal. It probably also helps that, like, the story of the Phantom of the Opera feels universal enough to where if you're a tourist in New York and maybe English isn't your first language, you can still understand the story pretty well. It's a very visual yeah. show. Right, you get the yeah, you get the gist of what's happening. Kind of like in an opera, in terms of like, you, you might not be able to hear like all of the dialogue, especially during songs where everyone's speaking at the same time. But at the same time, you get like the emotion of it, you get the bravado of it. I would take you to translate for me, but then you don't speak Italian, so you would just be going, "They're talking about pizza." 
They'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, Doctor, <Okay>. he's Pagliacci. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> Mama mia, pizzeria. Oh. <laughs> They're worried that a giant monkey is going to throw barrels at them. Right, as opposed to a toy monkey that plays music in the show. As we should, Let's get into the show itself, Adam. Let's get into yeah, buddy. this particular recording. Um, so I don't know if we're going to go like literally song by song or whatever. But no. What I like about this show, even from like, the stage version or seeing this version, is just the start of it being like at the auction. And mm-hmm. the fact that it's like this sort of like, oh, we're in the decayed ruins of uh, the, the former theater. And we see like the, you know, older Raul and everybody else there. I like the fact that it is just like this brief, like, prologue just to tell you like, oh, everything is decayed. We already know like this is leading to this place being completely undone. But this like little monkey initially giving us the tune for Masquerade pops up and it instantly like transports us back in time. And I love, especially in the... Uh, theatrical version I saw, it's like a film screen that's like right behind it just to show like the decay over the set mm-hmm. that you're seeing throughout the rest of it. Um, do you feel like that's a really good introductory device to get you entranced in the musical? Yeah, a thousand percent. It, it works so well because A, you're wondering what's going on. Like, oh, what happened to the theater? Oh, are we going to see? Are we going to see? And, it, you know, it does the sweet little masquerade part. You can tell there's real emotion happening. That Raul's, it's something that means something to him. And he feels a genuine sense of loss. And you don't really know why yet. Uh, and then just the, you know, and lot 666, the chandelier. And then, bah, 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 like, it just throws you right in. You're like, oh, shit, here we go. I think it's a great, great opening. And I like that they don't even have to, like, go back to it by the end, which, you know, that's something in, say, the Joel Schumacher movie they feel they have to do. Which, I don't know if we want to talk about that much during this, but definitely, like, because I want to talk about that in the main feed. Particularly, if we ever do that Gerard Butler episode, like, that's the one to do, (laughs) I would argue, for the bad pick. Uh, He's got a lot, but yeah, that's, that's a pretty good one. That's like the infamous one to talk about with him because he's the central problem. But anyway, um, I like the fact that we don't have to go back to it in the stage show because it's not about that anymore. That was just our introduction. Then we'd like to see this whole thing unravel. And all we really needed was just the fact that the theater just, uh, you know, sort of is cascade in darkness before the curtain call. Really just to tell you that like, oh, this is the event that kills this theater. It never really rises back up after that point. Right. But, um, yeah, as we, like, keep going along, so I'm, I'm curious, Adam, um, mm-hmm. you remember it when you first watched it, like, when the show really hooked you in this first act? Uh, like, as a child? Right. Is there a moment you remember instantly, like, oh, wow, this is, like, something brilliant and cool? I kind of already said it, and I, and I, and I still, even still stand by it. It's something simple, but with the curtain pulled off the chandelier and it lights up and then the music just so fucking loud like even in person it's so loud but it's just it's so cool and dark and sinister and it instantly sets you know sets the tone that this is going to be something a little bit strange and dark like there's no question there's this isn't just going to be a romance which i mean it is but it's also there's going to be darkness to this and get ready that and then of course just the opening bits with Carlotta, you know, her and the other guys fucking the song up because he can't say Roma. You know, it's just it's so <laughs> fucking good. And the costuming and everything like it's just it's fantastic. I mean, I think for me, like I liked all that stuff, at least when I saw like the show initially. But I think the moment that really sold me is when like they initially introduced the idea of like, oh, who's your tutor? Who's this mysterious tutor we've never heard of? Christine. And Christine's just like, oh, I don't know. I'm being sheepish about it. And then she's left alone. And then the phantom like basically enters through that mirror 
essentially. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the moment for like, oh, shit, this is fucking great. <laughs> like, it's so big and theatrical once again. It's just like, oh, a guy coming from the darkness. And he's just like, I've been tutoring you this whole time. And it's so creepy and weird, too. Like, when yeah. you think about it. Like, he's been there since she was seven years old. Mm-hmm. You know, listening to her and teaching her and all this stuff. And, you know, she's under the impression that he's an angel of music that her father told her that he would send to watch over her. And he knows it. And it's like this weird grooming slash gaslighting thing going on. But at the same time, he's genuinely in love with her and genuinely loves her voice and all this stuff and wants good things for her. Like, it's just, it's really strange and it's really kind of just disturbing. That's the relationship that's so key, really, is like between Christine and the Phantom in terms of that element you're talking about, where there is an inherent like gaslighting and grooming creepiness to it. And the best of those really just do a great job of balancing out the fact that, yeah, there's this tragedy to the Phantom in terms of like what he does desire and what like he has that genuine affection for Christine, just as like somebody who wants to see like succeed with her, her brilliant talent at music. But at the same time, he's a fucking creepazoid. And an adaptation that keeps that balance intact is the best kind of version as opposed to various versions where they lean more on sort of the love element or too much more on the creepazoid element or whatever. Like they never quite like find the middle ground. This is a, the best example of like finding that middle ground. I completely agree because the thing is, it's like the actor who plays him in this, I forget his name, it's like Ramiel or something like that. Uh, Ramen. Yeah, Ramen. Cam- Ramen. Uh, Kim. Car- yeah, yeah, yeah. Carilmo. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to try to say it. He's fucking great, too. He's got such a strong, bombastic voice, but then when he shows weakness in it, like you can just hear it. Or when he's screaming in rage, you can hear it. Like it, he's, He is very sort of enticing, and you get why someone would be attracted to this guy and all that. But then once he turns on the either the creep factor or just the horrible I'm a monster factor, like you completely... You believe it. You're like, oh yeah, this guy's fucking terrifying. Yeah, and I think a lot of that has to do with like something as simple as one, the de- this specific design of the mask, and then also the makeup, particularly the fact that you can see sort of his puffed up lips uh-huh. underneath. I think that's like so key. Where it's like he sings beautifully like an angel, and you know he's a handsome guy. Having seen like photos of him without like the disfigured makeup, yeah, he's fucking but gorgeous. Right, but there's that hint of, like, the lips just showing, okay, there's something a bit off about him. And then even, like, the way that that comes through with his voice, like, you, he sounds beautiful, but you can hear, like, a little thing where, like, the lips are getting in the way. Uh-huh. And it's just, like, kind of blocking it slightly, so it adds a little, like, imperfection that shows, like, he's clearly going to be self-conscious about this. Like, it, it's, it's so inherent with, like, his performance. Yeah, I agree. And and also, of course, other than probably the original cast with Sarah Brightman and Michael Crawford and all them, to me... This cast is just stellar all around. I think the guy who plays Raul is really good. I think Christine has just got fucking a set of pipes on her, man. And it's it's just really good. The guys who play the theater owners are great. Like, Carlotta is fucking crushes it. Uh, I just think everybody in this works. I think this is just such a strong, strong cast. Yeah, I think uh, Sierra Boges, who is the woman who plays Christine, what I love about her performance as well is the fact, like, because, you know, you mentioned, like, Michael Crawford and Sarah Brightman are, like, ones at least, I've never seen, like, obviously a film production of theirs, but, like, from stuff like the music video and stuff like that, they are such distinctive, bizarre performers in the best way. Uh Like, Crawford has this weird kind of, like, froggy voice that's a bit different, and Sarah Brightman looks like she's a deer in headlights constantly (laughs) whenever she stares, like, directly in your face, like, oh my god, (laughs) you're beautiful, but also I'm terrified (laughs) by just how unique a vision you are. But Bo just does such a great job, especially with, like, 
being a performer in particular, like even when she's like on stage doing stuff, like I love during uh, the one bit where she plays the page boy um, in the play and she's silent the whole time. But the way that she's like the big uh, sort of body language she does, just like, oh, I'm here. Yes, I'm right next to you. My love, wink. Oh, we're hiding this from the, the fucking French king or whatever. Like she plays that so like perfectly as like a performer but then even when she's off stage and she's trying to guard herself from everybody it feels genuine like she is somebody who's constantly performing in a way that fits perfectly for christine yeah and she's really able to sort of project and and really nail down the chemistry between her and both of her male leads like you completely believe that her and raul are an item you completely believe that she's in fact entranced by the phantom like you completely get it and it, 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 she's yeah, she's super super solid. Because I've seen three different Phantoms, I've seen three different Christines live. I mean, she, the, she's probably the this Sierra is probably the best one out of the ones I've even personally seen. Yeah, I think it, it really comes down to especially um, like the the big soul number she has where she talks about her father being gone. Um, I think it's a beautiful showcase for her. Like that that whole sequence where she just like really lays it all bare. It's like, so if you, especially when she's having to perform this, not just like on the stage as anyone else would, but particularly like not even to a real physical thing that's there. Cause we kind of mentioned this, but with the Royal Albert Hall, apparently there was a whole thing where they weren't sure if they were going to do like a concert version or they'd be able to stage it in the traditional way with like the big elaborate sets and everything. And Cameron McIntosh was like, nope, you're going to fucking do it with the sets and everything. And the compromises that they have like this big giant screen which has been a common thing particularly broadway productions like the last several years like i saw mean girls the musical they have a similar thing where like they have a digital screen that like has like oh we're in the cafeteria now we're in this which if you design a musical for that i think that works but in this case like you're kind of missing especially in the close-up shots where you're on stage with everybody like you see like the little digital pixels and it just kind of like takes you out of it yeah, I could see that. I could see why that would take somebody out of it. I, I completely understand. Like I said, with me seeing it as many times as I've seen it now, and, and I like I can already picture the stage behind them without having to see it. Like I already know what it is. I know where they are. I've seen it. So the digital screen doesn't really change anything for me. I'm able to project onto it myself. Right. I mean, I, I get that. And even as someone who's seen like a version that had like the big elaborate sets, I, I can agree that like it's it's enough of a compromise where it still feels like big and massive and grand. I think a big help with that is the fact that the orchestra is on top of that screen. Yeah, really cool. Feature. As opposed to obviously like you would have the traditional orchestra pit, but you can see like the actual bows and the conductor guy like on top. It doesn't that doesn't take you out of it. It just feels like, oh, they're just a part of the backdrop. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Um, the, honestly, like the only thing that where it really crushes me is, and I know this is just physical impossibilities with the theater, but they a big feature of like the end of the first act is that the chandelier, like during the big performance of the end of like All I Ask of You, is supposed to drop like right above the audience. And like yeah. I mentioned, I was like right underneath it when I saw it live. And I was like, this is so fucking dope. The fact that there's this staged, like, you know, this film staged show version and it just crackles to indicate that like, oh, the chandelier is done. Shoots off sparks. Yeah. Right. All power to the show for like, that's the best you could do with this particular venue. But at the same time, that's like so fucking key. <laughs> I know. I agree. I agree to the point where, because that's probably the third time I've watched this production. It's been a long time since I've watched it though. And I watched it with you know my wife and kid who my kid sat and watched the whole fucking thing which wild she's six and she sat there for two and a half hours or whatever even then i'm going is that is that what they're doing in this like 
No, the chandelier just hasn't dropped yet, right? Like, am I missing something? What's good? <laughs> the animation comes up and you're like, well, I'm still waiting. Maybe they put it in a different place for this performance. Like, I yeah, no, fuck. No, yeah, it, it's a shame, even though, like, we're used to disappointed. They're just like, let me get a lamp and just drop it on my head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do that, just, I'll compromise. <laughs> Here, I'll just set myself on fire. <laughs> oh, but, um... I guess, I mean, what would you say is sort of your, your favorite big, like, musical sequence of at least the first act, maybe? We'll, we'll divide this into acts a bit. What would you say of, like, the first act, what's, like, your favorite one that you always love to, to hear? Music of the night. I mean, it's hard to argue that. Yeah, <laughs> come on. That whole spiel, you know, where he gets her and then, you know, the sing for me and all that. She hits that fucking high note, which is insane. I mean, just how she escalates up to it. But then it follows right up with his own song. I mean, it's just, it's great. Excuse me, but I technically the part where she gets at that high note is part of the Phantom of the Opera song at the music of the night. <laughs> no, I know what I'm saying, but that, the lead up to that whole part. No, music right. of the night is my favorite song in the first act. But that whole bit where he first takes her, that it goes into, you know, the Phantom of the Opera song, and then it goes into the music of the night, you're like, damn, this is some great-ass theater. This theater, man, this theater making me feel shit. Well, especially with, like, Phantom of the Opera, it's so weird, like, especially when I, the initial version of, like, the musical I guess I'd seen was the Gerard Butler movie. And I always thought it was weird that, like, oh, wait, how come this is, like, mostly orchestral except for Phantom of the Opera is full-ass 80s synth? And honestly, like, in the show, it doesn't feel that weird because it feels like you're being introduced into the world of yes. the Phantom. You're being drawn in. So he has this, like, big synth thing that's going on. Like, instantaneously transports you, like, underneath. Yeah, he's almost like rock opera compared to regular opera. Right, cause especially because you've had enough musical numbers that are much more, like, traditionally opera and even musical theater-ish. And you're like, okay, mm-hmm. I kind of am used to this. And then he just comes in with the fucking left turn. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Have you heard of Bauhaus? <laughs> <laughs> it probably wouldn't have been as great if he came in with like a keytar. Yeah. Just, just, like, sing for me. Do you like the pitch mood? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, even in this version, like I will say another point that kind of like weirded me out because there's a couple points where I would say it's a bit over edited with the different angles we get of mm-hmm. like the. the and I think particularly the one that's a bit odd, and I think I found out why exactly, is when they do do the intro of Phantom of the Opera, the way that they have this happen is, like, our two main leads, like, go underneath the stage, and then we have, it's seemingly the two of them, like, walk on the catacombs up, up above to indicate, like, oh, we're going underneath. But apparently, the issue is that those are not the two actors that we've previously discussed. That's their stand-ins who are up on the rafters. And the show, oh. the, the, the digital version, makes sure to edit the fuck around them so you don't know notice that <laughs> it's a lot yeah, of just yeah like, that is a hundred percent true yeah to the point um, where you're like where the fuck did they go <laughs> like, they've almost completely disappear off screen right and there's the it has like the one really weird angle that i'm not a big fan of even in like other like pro shot things where the th- the camera is like in the back of the stage looking at the actors that's always so weird to me. And yeah, that I don't like, like that either. And that's a re- it's a really weird angle too, where it's like looking at what would be like I believe stage left um, as they're like going down. And you could once again, clearly, <laughs> just to, <laughs> I might have gotten that wrong. Uh, theater kids in the college, what a blunder. <laughs> but um, it is it's such a weird bizarre thing especially like I said they edit so much around like oh here's this other angle so you don't notice here's we're going up to the, like the balcony on this side and whatever they edit a lot around that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but again, though, you know, what are you going to, you have to, because when you're there in person, you can see the whole thing like you and you're not up close. Like you're not going to be like, I don't think that's really them. Like you're just sort of entranced, but at home, when you know, when you got zoom in angles and all this stuff and digital, and you got to try to hide it as much as you can. Well, I would probably agree with you if not for in the middle of that sequence, one of the weird editing tricks they do is they do have a shot of Sierra Bogus singing on the rafter, which was apparently shot during like the rehearsal they did for the show. So my thing is like, why not just insert like a full rehearsal thing of like that particular part? (laughs) So you're not distracting us this much with the editing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that would work. It's not like you got an audience clapping or cheering at that moment. So yeah, that would work. Right, but still, regardless, this is still, like, so engrossing, particularly when you have, like, after they go along the rafters and you have them, like, on the gondola. Like, that's such a great example of, like, once again, it fits that gothic horror aesthetic we're talking about, and they're gliding along as they're, like, singing their hearts out about the idea of, like, the phantom has abducted me. It adds that, once again, like, the, the horror, but also a bit of the thrill of the idea of just, like, oh, this is a part of this theater I've been performing at for years that I've never seen before, and there's all this stuff down here. And especially if it's a different film version, it's like, there's a fucking horse down here? How do you have a fucking horse here? I know, it's so funny, because I, I watched the the fucking Schumacher one, you know, and that part came where he, he literally takes her, like, I don't know, 50 feet on the horse. <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking, she, she should be like, um, this is great, I'm having a good time, but is this horse only for this hallway? <laughs> like, like <laughs> you have a hallway horse? Also, I'm a bit concerned about you. You've been walking this whole time. I'm on the horse. Like, do you want to get up on the horse? Yeah, like, is your feet hurting? <laughs> Does everybody have a hallway horse? <laughs> Look, save the impressions for whenever we do cover the move, the Joel Schumacher mm. movie. Oh, but, um, but I, I mean, yeah, I, I do, like, really love... Just, like, that that whole sequence is, like, probably the most iconic thing of the show, right? Sure. Yeah, I think so. That and probably uh, the end of Masquerade, where he comes in with a different mask and, and the red and stuff like that. But before we get into that, though, since we're, that's going into Act 2, are there any other, like, big sort of, like, musical moments in Act 1 you want to shout out? You know, when they have uh, Christine take over the role. You know, and she, she, they're like, okay, sing for me. And she sings, and it's just beautiful. Like, it starts off rough, but then when she really gets into it, they're like, everybody stops. And they're like, what is this? It's, it's just wonderful. Yeah, and I mean, I would also want to shout out with, like, you mentioned Raul, which we should mention that uh, the, the actor is uh, Hadley Frazier. Um, Raul has always been sort of, like, uh, the biggest turd for me with the show. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Right, turd. Um, more just because, like, he's obviously like, the lesser of two evils for Christine, I guess, because it's like, um, depending on the version, because I think that's the trouble is that different versions portray Raul more. It's just like, I am the completely great, nothing's bad about me dude who you can instantly go to instead of the creepy phantom dude who's been grooming you this whole time. Right. Uh, therefore, I am the best option, and we have great chemistry, don't we? And a lot of times that does not work for me. But I think with this particular version of Raul, what I love is that there is that hint of just the fact that he's like, he is aware that it's technically like a bit of a settling thing for her. Like even during like the, all I ask of you, he's like being big and honest about like, oh, I, I want to, you know, be a part of your life and all this other stuff. But at the same time, he knows just like, hey, look, I don't, I don't live in the sewer. I don't live in the sewer. <laughs> look, I, I just Points. did my hair this morning. I got money. 
Right, and even as that the character continues, like particularly when he's so hell bent on like making sure that every like the the army is aware of like uh, make sure all the doors are closed and shoot at the specific time. I said the specific time. Don't shoot now. Like there's this hint of that he's just like so full of rage that is like clearly like bubbling to the surface to where you're like okay, Christine isn't gonna have the best life afterwards. So when you see him earlier and he's all old and regretful, you can see it's like a thing of like oh my god, I was such a young impulsive asshole. It makes the right. opening feel even more like of a tragedy. Yeah, and then as we know, he becomes a degenerate alcoholic gambler who splits out on his family. Okay, save it. We're we're going to talk about that. (laughs) We have to talk about that a lot. A Um, lot. (laughs) A lot. Uh, Get ready, everybody. This is a secret secret double-edged double bill about Phantom of the Opera. It it basically is, guys. (laughs) We'll get to it. Um, But but yeah, uh, it's... uh, this is a, a much better version of the character than I've seen in most other versions. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, I, I really enjoy th- his performance quite a bit. Uh, like you said, he it does feel like he genuinely loves Christine. He knows that there's not maybe as much love there for him as he has for her, but he's also like, I'm going to protect her at whatever cost, and it has to be done my way to make sure it's done right. Blah, blah, blah. Also, she'll see that I saved her, and oh my God, aren't I charming? And you know, I'm the hero and all this stuff. And I just think it, yeah, it's a really, really good performance. He's not a hundred percent like Wonder Boy Raoul, but he's not exactly like this horrible piece of shit either. Genu- seems like a genuinely good guy, but he's got sort of, like you said, maybe a little bit of a rage issue. A bit more controlling, yes, for sure. On that, is this also is the first act where we get like the big like uh, thing with the letters that particular number, yeah. or is that yes. yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah? It's it's the second time you see Raúl, right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that musical number also is so fun. It's like the, the, the big comedic highlight of the show. Wendy Ferguson, who plays Carlotta, and then uh-huh. Barry James and Gareth Snook, who play the two Mashures, who take over. Um, I, I just love like that banter back and forth works so well. Even to where, once again, you don't, once they all start singing, you don't hear everything, but you get, once again, the comedic fun of like all of them saying, like, everything's going to go fine. They're like the people who are being warned by the fucking crazy Ralph of the Opera. And they're not going to listen to him. Right, 100%. They just deny, deny, deny. If we pretend it's not real, it's, then it won't happen. Though, Shadow, there is actually a guy who is basically the crazy Ralph who's like the stage manager. Yeah. And I would say, um, of all the people in this, I would love to see a performance where Adam Thomas plays that stage manager guy. I would do it. I would do it. You would do it so well. <laughs> that would <honestly>. be great. <laughs> you just like fucking with people and then you have a dummy of you that's hanging by the end of like that one. Hell yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. Then I take it home and make sweet, sweet love to it. <laughs> I mean, as you've always wanted. I think they're going to use your real doll. They're just like, oh, we have to build yeah, a yeah. dummy. I don't know if we can afford it for this production. I will help you out and I'll clean it too. Yeah, wait a moment. I got to run parts through the dishwasher first. <laughs> <laughs> but then act two starts and as you mentioned like masquerade is like the big opening production they get you back after like you've gotten your you know gone to the bathroom gotten your your refreshments you come back and masquerade just booms out and that's another great example of like just showing off the opulence it's this is probably my favorite musical number of act two i would say uh, it's mine too. it's like yeah, it's yeah, so boisterous too. and big, and it's like so fun. And also, once again, completely contrast with you remember the last time you heard this theme was from a little fucking musical toy that's a monkey. Yep, yep, yep. And also, I love the staging here where you have like it's so opulent, they have people dressed up as like fucking uh, like nutcracker dudes with the drums and shit like that, and the monkey as well. It's like that's how ridiculously opulent this all is. I know. Uh, yeah, it's just a bunch of rich fucks. 
probably orgying, I'd imagine, <laughs> or they're going to. I'd like to imagine. Is, 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 is that the verb of orgy? <laughs> is orgying? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> orgying. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what else could it be? <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great bit. Like everyone's having their fun, everyone's having a good time. There's still a little bit of tension happening with Raúl and Christine, where she wants to still keep it a secret. They're together, and he's like, you know, what the fuck? And I don't want to argue. Well, uh, and then they, they split up, and then he comes fight her again, and then of course the Phantom comes in, starts throwing fire about the place, uh, <laughs> and it's great, you know. And the thing is too, which I, you know, I want to touch on one of my favorite parts of the fan of the opera period. At least this is my interpretation of it. Yes, he's a great singer. Yes, he's got just a beautiful voice. He can teach Christine to do it. But he writes his own opera, and it's a mess. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's inherent to the texts, yeah. Yeah, it's great. He's He just can't... He's not... He didn't know how to write a fucking opera. It, it's the first self-insert fan fiction, basically. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> he knows how to write for Christine, but that's it. And also how to write around, like, she's, she's my favorite. She's totally, like, the star of this particular fic I have. But guess what? I get to enter in and become, like, her love interest in my mysterious cloak. Yep, 100%. So like, we're, we're, we're OTP. Uh, my original OC don't steal. <laughs> and now we're in love, and we're going to get married, and we're going to have, like, 20 kids, and you're not invited. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Only my horse is invited to the wedding. He's my best man. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's my best friend. Holy horsey. Um, <laughs> I bought a bow tie and everything for him for the wedding. It's going to be yeah, great. It's going to be cute. He's got a little horse spats. Um, <laughs> little horsey hat. But even to go back to the masquerade thing, something I didn't even mention about this particular like filmed version that I love is the fact that you have the certain things coming from the audience, like even like the monkey guys are like come in through the actual crowd or even like the, there's a bit later on when he does do the thing with the French guards, about like make sure every door is sealed and you hear it from like every single side of the theater. They do that at the uh, Panchages too, where they have surround sound speakers set up. They do it for that moment. They also do it for, you know, when the Phantom actually comes in during the first, performance where he's like i thought i said you know box five was to remain empty and all that it's playing from a loudspeaker in the back of the theater like it's really fucking cool even like with the intro of the once we get past like the the big pass thing we're in you know the 1800s or whatever and you have like the stage manager come in from the audience as well like you're almost being ingratiated in with the crowd like it's a great thing which is the crowd is just like oh okay we're in on the show we're all part of this we're just being we've been transported officially back to this time yeah it's fucking stellar dude it's great i mean yeah you, and you, know, you know what the fuck do you want me to say it's great thomas <laughs> well get ready to keep saying as we continue into i guess we should get into the close of the show because we do want to talk about the other thing <laughs> sensibly gently <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> but 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 no, even like you mentioned, like when we get to like the Don Juan Triumphant, which I do love how lame even that title is. But when he introduces oh, ter- terrible, terrible, right. very interesting. Given uh, Joel Schumacher directed the the film version, and it was probably not too long after he had to cancel work on Batman Triumphant, his attempted third Batman movie. <laughs> oh jeez, <laughs> probably why spoke to him just like Triumphant. Yeah, yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> I'll um, do it. Look, I'll put nipples on the Phantom. John Butler's just got two holes cut out of the front of his shirt. <laughs> <laughs> the studio's like, no, we won't do it. And he, Butler's like, man, I need to get a movie where like I am shirtless and my nipples show up all the time. I need to show off my mommy milkers. <laughs> 
but but even just in terms of the, the the phantom like at the end of masquerade like you talked about like i like this is obviously something that's been iconic ever since the 1925 version you can tell it's inspired by that like the mask of the red death kind mm-hmm. of costume Lancini wore but just the simple factor of like that his lower jaw can move like adds so much yeah really cool really weird it's the first time yeah. i've ever seen it done that way right and it really works, especially for, like, you, know, you can see the scarring of the Phantom and stuff like that as he's, like, once again in a completely different costume. It's just like, well, guess what, everybody? Perform my fanfic! Here it is! The script for right. it. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, there you go. Opening scene. We arrive at Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everyone's just like, why is it crossed out, like, under Hogwarts? He's like, pay no attention to that. Yeah, no, don't worry about it. No. Look, if the Fifty Shades of Grey lady can, like, cross out fucking uh, Forks Washington, I can do this. Enter Christine, or as she is in this play, Mrs. Incredible. Oh. <laughs> Look at that dump truck. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love that the Phantom becomes a big nerd perv. <laughs> the Phantom has a lovely art gallery. Oh, 100%, yep. Oh, be careful of my flashlight. Uh, don't worry, I, I removed Sonic is super pregnant out of this one. I don't think it would really fit the story. Oh, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Uh, less tentacles. <laughs> but um, still on on the gross sexuality element of it, uh, the point of no return, yes. I think, is really well staged in this version. Where you have, like, I love the, the cloak costume in this particular one, and the way, especially, that, like, they're so intimate, and you can tell Christine is, like, trying to go as far as possible without going into the sexual territory, and the moment he sure. does, she grasps away from it. Like, I just love the stage, like, the, the actors there, particularly, like, it's such a great use of body language. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and, you know, even, ju- even just the, you know, I, I didn't mention it, but one of my, the other thing about how much of a fucking just psychopath the phantom is where he starts to sing all i ask of you to christine right at the end of the first day yeah and you're like oh <laughs> like she's almost into it for a second well she's like nope <laughs> like it's it's really fucking just gross it's yeah. gross and i love also the staging of whenever like he have that element going on like he's up on top of like the screen for like yeah. the stage like i love that he's just like towering over everybody yeah it's great yeah and then i mean the point of no return leads into the finale and i'm curious like while we're at the finale because this is where he's mostly unmasked how do you feel about this interpretation of the scarring of the phantom it's weird it's kind of gross where he's got like an exposed skull yes like it, it's really i mean obviously it's stage makeup so it's not going to be the greatest mm-hmm. but it's pretty well done it's pretty solid it's it's pretty extensive I mean, because I've seen, you know, in the three performances I've seen, I've seen it where it's just, you know, he's got maybe a white eye and white hair when they rip the thing off. I've also seen it where half his jaw is like where they have like fake teeth put on the face. So it looks like his, he's got this horrible, you know, grin. It's just, I've seen it all in different ways. I, I think this is a pretty solid way to do it. Yeah. I mean, considering there are certain versions even where it's barely any kind of scarring, which kind of ruins the tragedy. Like, yeah, I don't know, 100%. Maybe say a, a certain film adaptation <laughs> directed by Joe Schumacher also. What? Where it just looks like, I don't know, get some acne makeup, dude. I think it'll clear it up. Thousand percent. Get some sleep and some fucking Neutrogena. You'll be good right. to go. <laughs> I think it'll be fine after that. Yeah, after a week, it'll be good. No, don't look at my hideous face. 
I got pimples. It's because I can't stop eating Cheetos. <laughs> That's all. It's actually just Cheeto dust. That's what's on his chest. Yeah. And my Mount Dew game fuel. <laughs> the Phantom Twitch streams are the worst. <laughs> hey, what's up, everybody? Thanks for coming. Uh, they're performing the aria downstage. Uh, I'm sorry for the, the noise. Yeah, sorry, guys. <laughs> Anyways, uh, <laughs> zombies ate my neighbors. So. <laughs> <laughs> then you hear, like, neighing of distance, like, shut up, horsey! I already fed you! <laughs> yeah, I told you I had to buy it, and I'm doing my shows! <laughs> I'm sure Andrew Lloyd Webber would love all these references we're making <laughs> to this. They're, they're better than what he did with it. Yeah. I mean, before we get to that, though, I'm curious, like, how do you feel especially about, like, the ending and where we leave the Phantom on, like, the whole, like, back and forth with, like, trying to, like, kill Raul and then his realization and then everything, like, he disappears and only his mask is left for Meg, the super important character, (laughs) to find. How do you feel about all that? (laughs) Well, the thing is, I really have always liked the ending. I I like that, you know, she gives him the kiss. And it's, you know, well, he's just, he's just full of rage. He wants what he wants. And he's going to take Christine and kill Raul so she'll only be his. And she kisses him. It's the first time anybody's been nice to him and done something gentle to him and for him. And it just completely destroys his sort of ego where he's just going go. Because I can't give her what she needs. For her to remain with me now, it would just destroy her. And I can't do that. And therefore, it destroys him at the same time. And he decides, I'm not going to be the Phantom of the Opera anymore. I'm not going to be this. And he disappears. And you don't know, you supposedly don't know where he goes. Uh, (laughs) Right. But no, I I agree that, like, I I love the way that it sort of leaves things, especially on that particular note of just, like, the the mystery of, like, oh, he's gone. He's disappeared and all that's left is his mask. Just to indicate that, like, I'm not even going to bring the thing that I've used to hide my face. I'm just going to hide that permanently from everything. Yep. That part of him is gone now. He's dead. Right. He's, he's, what, just, who knows what he's going to become next, or if he's even going to continue living, you don't know. Right. This definitive punctuation mark on the whole story. Yeah. Right. Uh, yep. Pretty much. Um, and No I mean, Meg swinging, singing about swimsuits for no reason. Well, okay. I guess briefly before we get to that, because we should mention that at the end of this particular filmed production, there's a big sort of like curtain call finale where everybody has to come down and does their bows, which is always great. But then Andrew Lloyd Webber gets to come up and like thanks everybody um, who participated in any version of the production. This big sort of like celebration, obviously, like, and you know what? Earned for the 25th anniversary of one of the most successful Broadway shows of all time. And it leads to a big sort of encore performance in which we have people who have played uh, Christine, in the case of Sarah Brightman, who originated the role, but also Michael Crawford, who was like the big guy on the West End and Broadway and touring the U.S. But then a few other phantoms, which includes that Calm Wilkinson, um, who apparently originated the role of the phantom in like the original production at what was the Sidmonton Festival, like the first (laughs) trial run of the show, but also was like in the Canadian tour. And there's also Anthony Warlow, who was in the Australian production, Peter Joback, uh, who was in the London theater uh, version at the time of this recording. And uh, John Owen Jones, who played him in the West end in the early two thousands. She initially sings the fame of the opera with them. And then they all sing music of the night together. And even though they're all like obviously stationary and just standing there like singing, it's pretty infectious. Like that sort of like almost 
a fan servicey thing. I'm like, they're all on the stage together and they're saying it's fucking dope. It's fantastic. It's one of those things to where, like I said, I've seen this actual film version. I think this is like my third or fourth time. I always forget about it for some reason. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why. Uh, I think probably because you're just so entranced of what's been going on for two hours. You know, the the stage show itself that, of course, the curtain call and then Andrew Lloyd Webber comes out and you're like, holy shit. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait. Oh, yeah. It's everybody. Michael Crawford. What the fuck? <laughs> it's like and then my, my personal angel of music. And she comes out and you're like, oh, shit. And then the four phantoms come up behind her. It's just it becomes just this fucking beautiful celebration of the history of this show. And it's just so well done. And it's just goosebumps the entire time. I mean, all four of those guys have such distinct voices that are all unique, but all of them are fucking great. And of course, Sarah Brightman is just, I mean, that woman's voice is insane. Uh, And also very impressive that she's willing to do this considering that she was married to Andrew Lloyd Webber during the time of the original show production. They divorced like in the early 90s. Big shocker. Um, which, which is what prevented the movie from being made like in the late 80s or so with Crawford and Brightman involved. You're right, right, right. But um, yeah, it's, it's fucking, it's a, a, a hell of an encore. Yeah. And it's really fiction, even as like somebody who like, I'm aware of like Crawford and Brightman, but I wasn't even aware that like the other people who were involved, like had played the fans or whatever. But at the same time, it's like, fuck yeah, you guys are great together. And even those like the sweet little bits, like Cameron McIntosh bringing over Andrew Lloyd Webber and all of it and all like the fandoms, like pay tribute to him. Basically, it's a very sweet, infectious thing. Like it's almost all these different people like coming back together after being, you know, distant from each other for so long. It feels like it's a great reunion. Even Raman grabs Michael Crawford's hand and tells him that he's their angel of music. And Michael Crawford's, like, crying clearly. Like, you're like, oh, this is amazing. Honestly, like, that, the, only, the only slight disappointment is that Crawford doesn't sing that much in it. Because right. Didn't he do a performance earlier or something like that? Right. He was, um, they mentioned that at a certain point, like, he, straight from the London Palladium. He just right. came over because he was at a performance of The Wizard of Oz, which is like a stage version of the movie mm-hmm. with additional songs by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Interesting. Fact. Right. Well, and Michael Crawford also has that disease. I forget the name of it, uh, but it causes severe exhaustion. Right. I don't know that it's even that he couldn't sing again. I'm sure he could. But if you notice when he comes on stage and then, oh, Michael Crawford, he disappears until the end when all the other phantoms are singing. They don't show him again. You don't see him on the stage again. I literally think he's probably sit down at the back. Right, because he also had an evening performance to do after this of the Wizard of Oz show. So he couldn't like do all three of those in one day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which, I mean, makes sense. And I get it, even though I do love the fact that he joins in for the last note. That's like a beautiful thing. They have a close-up on his face. Yeah. Yep. Great. 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 Yeah. And I guess we should talk about the fact that, you know, we mentioned that the actor, Raman, uh, he did actually, interesting fact, originated the role of the Phantom, uh, not here, but in Love Never Dies in the London. And he also plays Christine's father in the photo and the one flashback you get in the Joel Schumacher version. Oh, interesting. Yes. Uh, but yeah, we should get to talking at least because we, we got to rant about this first because we both, along with this, watched Love Never Dies, which around the same time as this pro shot was done, after so much development hell for the over the course of like 25 years, Andrew Lloyd Webber produced a sequel with Love Never Dies, which we saw a pro shot of um, and is basically a sequel that takes place 10 years later 
as they will remind you several times throughout the play. That this 10-year gap, even though it's a weird thing where the original, like, Phantom of the Opera takes place in, like, the 1880s, and this is, like, 1905, so it's more, like, 20 years later? So yep. the math doesn't even figure out right, but whatever. Um, and in this play, the concept is that the Phantom left France and is now in Coney Island in New York, runs a freak show circus thing in Coney Island, where Meg, who was a character we barely mentioned in the original play, because, spoiler, she's not that crucial. She's just one of the other dancers who's like, hey, Christine, I hear you have a tutor. And she'll occasionally say, like, Phantom of the Opera. But she's, like, a huge supporting character, yep. along with her uh, aunt, the the Countess, who we didn't even her talk mother. about that much. Her mother. Her mother. Right, her mother, the Madame, uh, who we didn't even talk about that much. It's just, like, she gives exposition about the Phantom's yeah. origins, basically, right. in the original play. That's about yep. it. Stops her cane around, and that's about it. Right, and they go off to Coney Island with him because? Yep, sure. <laughs> that's a good, there's your answer. And they're super loyal to him to the point when they find out that Christine, Raoul, and their child are coming over to New York. They're like, oh, she might ruin things for us with the Phantom. It's like, why do you care? The Phantom's also amassed three Tim Burton characters as his henchmen, um, <laughs> which is very interesting. And he's also Mr. Y, get it? Oh, God. Mm-hmm, spooky. Phantasmo is the name of his play, is his troupe, which, hey, that means Phantom. Oh. Ah, see, not too on the nose. I, w- I wasn't aware of this. Um, nope, and, never would have picked that up. And, you know, he basically has invited um, Raul and Christine under the auspice of like, oh, guess what? Um, I'm Oscar Hammerstein, and you're going to yep. perform at my opera, Christine. And, and I'm going to pay oh, you no, a just... lot of money. Because right. let's also not forget that Raul has horrible gambling debts and spent all their money, and he's also an alcoholic. Right, and a terrible father and husband. Gives zero fucks about either of them. Right, and then Christine meets back up with the Phantom, and they uh, spark a bit more of a romance. Adam, I'm curious, because you were aware this existed, but you hadn't Uh, really seen anything about it, right, until now. I roughly knew what it was about, but I never watched it. I knew that it was, obviously, Christine and the Phantom were in love and all that. I didn't know what a bastardization of the original (laughs) that it was going to be. Because, uh, I mean, it in every way. Biggest problem, and I'm just going to dump right into it, is that so supposedly in the one week or so that the original takes place, her and the Phantom hooked up and had sex. Now, okay, whatever. Maybe you can inter- like sort of insert that somewhere into the... Well, well, they have a whole song, my favorite terrible song. In the, in, I know, where, well, what I'm gonna, what I'm getting into is, yes. So in that song, yes, it's implied that it was several times in one night that they had sex under the moonlight, and then the Phantom just bailed out her the next day. Yep. And also, it's it's implied to be shortly after the end of the the original play. So like after he's like disappeared with the mask, he's like, "Oh, BTW, want to fuck? Sure, yeah." And like, is Rolex? I guess is like waiting with the horse, just like she'll come back. She has to use the ladies' room. I'm sure that's all I'm waiting for. He, the the part that makes me laugh so hard is that like they had sex multiple times, and he gave it to her to the point where she passed out. It was so good. That Christine is like, oh, ah, and passes out. <laughs> and, and and keep in mind, like, this is all described in this song that's like eight minutes, eight minutes long. And then the Phantom's like, oh, 
fuck. <laughs> like, what, oh, what did I do? <laughs> he takes off. I mean, especially when, like, oh. in the in the original play, he's implied to be, like, a virgin. So it's just like, oh, is that, like, a lot of pent-up I mean, in, like, other, in, some, in some versions of it, it's implied that he has no genitalia. Right. He's a eunuch. So in this, you're like, wait a minute. So the phantom dicked down Christine several times in one night. She passed out from orgasm. And he regretted what the fuck happened and took off and left her outside. <laughs> he left her in the dirt under the moonlight somewhere. I just love that idea. <laughs> that she's passed out with her fucking giant bald guy just up above, like raised up, just passed the fuck out, hair a must. And he's like, oh, man. I got a bail. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, Phantom's pullout game is super weak. Yep. <laughs> right. Big shocker. That would, Did you not see that reveal coming? That Gustav is actually the Phantom's son? Right. At the, the little boy is because mainly because he's so good at music. Yes, and he's also super pale. And has black hair. <laughs> and I love the reveal moment when he realizes that it's like Gustav's playing on the piano and it's just like, he's just 10 years old. It's like, yeah, I know. Right, right. And then after you get the idea that he might have taken him down to the sewer to murder him. Right. And then the kid plays the piano. He's like, nope, scratch that. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got a bunch of other like freaks with long fingernails and shit and glass diamonds. In a really creepy musical number as well, about just like, can you feel it? Yes, to the little 10 year old boy. It's like, this is really weird. It's, bizar- it's so bizarre. It's so bizarre. And then it's like, Meg kills Christine? <laughs> right, because like, they have this whole thing where Meg's been performing and like, she performs a bunch of like, dumb musical numbers for Coney Island about like, Bane oh, and Beauties and all like, yeah. really bad songs. Why is but that a time- huge number though? Like, it could have been just that thing. The fact that they even show you two of these numbers in its entirety, you're like, oh my god. And someone had to stretch out like two hours, basically, mm-hmm. to get this to like stage length. And it's like, in the whole time she's in the background, just like, oh, I guess, you know, uh, I want the fam to notice me. Notice me, Sampai Phantom. So please, you have to like notice who I am. Because she gives that much of a shit about like the fam noticing her. And the fandom has like no relationship with her whatsoever. They, they don't share a scene until the ending after she kidnaps Gustav and it turns yep. out like she's been the real villain this whole time trying yep. to set everything up. So poorly established and then she's just like, oh, like fine, you can take him but I'm going to point the gun at you, Phantom and the Phantom has to like negotiate a hostage situation. Uh, I know, I know. It's my favorite fucking thing. Because <laughs> it's like, in the first movie, the Phantom straight up hangs a guy in public. He... Right. Rooms, Christine, he sets people on fire, he gets sword fights, he's just a horrible... None of this mentioned in this musical, by the way, at all. None no, of not at all. Not a, no, 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 not at all. Because she doesn't care. He fucking gave her the O of her young life, so all that shit doesn't matter. The thing is, yeah, she's got the gun, and he's like, just just put it down on it, Meg. Give it to me. You're like, wait a minute, what is this shit? Who is this compassionate fuck now? Like, what is, what is happening here? Why is it? And they're in like the middle of a fucking bridge in New York, and he's like, no, 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 hey, 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 look at me, look at me. No, keep the gun on me. Keep the gun on me. That's right. Hey. And you're like, okay, what is this? It's like Martin Riggs and Lethal Weapon with the guy on the roof about to jump. Like, what is the Phantom doing here? And by the way, Raul is, is gone at this point. 
Like he's gone. Like he took off. Phantom gave him money. He left. They had that whatever deal. In the brilliant scene, like opens the second act where he's like Rose at the bar and he's just like, fucking mm-hmm. kids and my wife. Am I right? They're such fucking hassles. Can you believe it? Right, new bartender for the day shift, and the bartender turns around. It's the Phantom. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, and they set that fucking deal. But then, anyways, so Christine gets shot. Phantom's like Ooh, holding her, and then uh, onto the bridge comes Raúl. Like <laughs> she walks up, like, "Oh, hey, what's up?" You know, and just the Phantom going, "No!" <laughs> the most cliche, stereotypical bullshit. It is ridiculous. And then Raúl's just like. Seriously, like, straight up, fuck my kid, I'm out of here. You can raise him sewer, man. The kid takes off the mask. The second time. Yeah, the first time the kid freaks out, the second time takes off, starts rubbing his his papa's face. Oh, papa. (laughs) And that's the end of the fucking musical. That's how it ends. (laughs) Brilliant. And all of this, like, it feels like it's fucking what... The Phantom wrote his, his self-insert fan fiction for Don Juan Triumph. It really, really does. Like, you know, there's a whole song about how he, you know, gave it to her so good. And, you know, see? Oh, hell yeah. Oh. That's exactly what it seems like. It is horrible. It is so hard to even get through. The way it's shot is t- terribly distracting to me. Like, it's just... Mm-hmm too much i cannot stand the three companions of the phantom and their yeah. whole shtick and spiel i fucking hate it one of them's like a discount alan cumming the other one is a little person woman who's like harley quinn basically yeah and then like fucking uncle fester <laughs> and they're just yeah, like, the trio, like we're the trio <laughs> yeah there's this fucking walmart ben tim burton goth bullshit happening in the middle of this and you're like why did why what is this? Like, what the fuck is this? And this, there's like basically one backdrop cloth, and then there's just a bunch of random jutting bridges. It's just a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. I messaged you saying, yes. "Yeah, I'm watching this. I wouldn't recommend it." You're like, but I gotta. I mean, you gotta. I get it. You know, I'll give credit to the people in it. Like, they sing all right and everything, but it's just you don't care about the songs. Yeah. If anything, I just feel bad for them. You know, I feel bad for them, too. My my wife and I are actually making that joke. Imagine, you know, you get a call from your agent. Guess what? You just landed the role of the Phantom on Broadway. They're like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I made it. Oh, thank you. Mom, you'd be so proud of me. Oh, take care of Dad in heaven. Oh, it's where love never dies. No! <laughs> like, why have you cursed me, mother? Burn in hell! Well, I guess, like, if they're originating the roles, I guess it could be a thing of just like, well, I mean, it's the sequel to the biggest Broadway show ever. Yeah, just, like, you know, it's what? the first production. Like, we're going to go out there swinging with it. Oh, sweet. Yeah, cool. Like, Andrew gives you the script, like, I can't wait for you to perform yeah. it. Please give it a read through. Like, oh. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> uh, they fucked? <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, they did several times. It was great. And erotic. To the point where, like, honestly, I wish instead of the intro we got where it's like the Phantom singing to a big portrait of Christine, completely undoing in the first few seconds the whole ending of the first fucking play. Yeah. Um, yeah I would yeah, just yeah. love if, like, the only way this would make sense is if the intro was, like, a bunch of street toughs in Coney Island, like, circa 1920 or whatever, are just, like, on the boardwalk just like, hey, look at this thing! I found this big book! I think it's an old stage play script of some sort! 
Let's read. Oh, let's see. It's Love Never Dies by the Phantom Eric. Let's yeah. read it. <laughs> and then they look into the audience. Little do we know that that's the last time the three of us would be together. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Christian Bale and his buddies from Newsies. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Whoa, look at this. You got some moxie on you. Let's go play stickball. The Dodgers are on. Um, <laughs> but it's just, it's it's pure garbage. And the thing is, the entirety of even the, the love never, the song about them fucking, takes away just the purity of the kiss at the end of the original. Yep. You know, where that's what, oh my God, that's what made him snap into like, oh my God, somebody's nice to me, blah, blah. If he's already been pumping her in the guts fucking like a couple nights prior, several times in the dirt somewhere, what the hell's a kiss going to mean? It's even weirder if the implication is like after that moment that changes him so much. Like, because I think that song's supposed to establish it happened like right after the end of the show. That is weirder because then she knows what he looks like without the mask. Right. Like, yeah, fuck it. Leave it off. Um, it's just that and the rubber, apparently. <laughs> Leave them both off. It's just, what the fuck, dude? This is, it's it's so bad. And the songs are bad. And you know what the problem is when you're watching a full-length musical and you get a hint of Masquerade or a hint of Music of the Night or a hint of the Phantom of the Opera song. And I mean, for like a couple notes, and that's the best part of the whole show. There's, there's there's that one part of the original musical that you Christine sings that one song again, but noticeably leaves out the part where she mentions the murder. Yeah, of course. <laughs> right, because he never mur- he, he murdered that ass. That's about it. Right. I cannot believe, I mean, I just mean, me and my wife are watching and our jaws were on the floor during the whole song where they reveal what happened. And we had to keep pausing and coming up with scenarios like how it happened and when it happened and how good it was, apparently. It just, what do you think the constellations were that night? Like, it just occurred, like, this is a bit, this is atrocious. It is atrocious. It is so laughably just misguided. Like, there is there a world where you could do a sequel to The Phantom? Sure. Should you? Probably not. And if you're going to, it definitely shouldn't be this. This is, keep in mind, like, the result of, like, 25 years of different, like, development hell production delays and stuff like that to try and get this to be made. And this is what they ended up with, finally. This is what they decided to square away on. The sequel to, like, this massively popular, beloved, like, big musical that was still running, and meanwhile, this version uh, opened and closed within, like, a couple years. And even though they tried it at various different things, like there was a U.S. tour and an Australia production, which is what the filmed version is of the Australia production. Um, and just every time, everyone's just like, what the fuck is this? No, Andrew. And Andrew's like, I, 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 do you want me to do a U.S. tour? All right, let's do that. <laughs> I know, and it's it's just nobody likes this either. I, at least I think I don't know that there's fans of this. I, I I'm sure there is. I'm sure there's somebody who likes it. There has to be. To anybody who's a fan of the original, I mean, it's like kind of a slap in the face. So this is one of those things where I literally will just choose to ignore this. Like this doesn't exist. This is not an official sequel, in my opinion. Uh, I, I, you know, even it, it is, but I just want I I'm not gonna acknowledge that it exists, and that's fine. It does exist, but I don't have to acknowledge it. This is fan fiction made by a different Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yeah, the one who I agree. wrote like yeah. the School of Rock musical. <laughs> it's Mandrew Boyd Webber with two B's and two R's. <laughs>
this shit's gonna be tight. They gonna be fucking all over my play. <laughs> oh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's in the recording, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, Andrew, Andrew Boyd Webber. Andrew Boyd Webber. Look, they're gonna love this just as much as they're gonna love the fucking Les Mis director doing the Cats movie. Yeah. Both of them are gonna be so well-received and beloved. Great. Great. Except in this one, we're not digitizing out no assholes. <laughs> well, Adam... Yeah. We talked quite a lot about these various different versions of the fans or whatever. So, any closing thoughts? Anything before uh, we close the curtain and take our bows about Phantom of the Opera? Um, I think if you want, if you haven't seen the Phantom live, and you d- maybe don't want to go to the theater, or maybe not into going to the theater, or whatever it is, I think probably the Royal Albert Hall 25th anniversary is going to be your best um, sort of. Op- option uh, it's obviously you're not in the theater but it makes you feel like you could be it's a brilliant production you know aside from a couple hiccups with some of the camera work and the chandelier thing and all that but it is still just masterfully done masterfully acted masterfully performed and like i said that encore is just mwah, icing on the cake um i don't love never dies i mean if you're a glutton for punishment have at it uh but as far as the rate you know, the Royal Albert Hall, one out of five, even with this fault, I'm still going a solid five. Um, I think it's absolutely perfect. Yeah, I mean, I would say I'm more, because, um, like, like, Phantom isn't my necessarily favorite show ever, you know? Um, I would sure. probably say it's more like a, like a four out of five for me, which is to say I do really love it. Um, but I, I would still probably say that, like, this version is still very well filmed, uh, despite some of the hiccups and whatnot, like you mentioned, um, and it's definitely, like, you know, it, it's fun to be able to have that experience of watching this, even if you're not, you know, like, on your Sunday best out there watching, you know, the, the fans of the opera in the theater. You miss some of that stuff, like the chandelier thing, obviously, in particular, uh, but at the same time, you get about as much as you possibly humanly can out of this version, and I think it's, you know, it does a great job with all of that. Um, and Love Never Dies, um, if you want to see what feels like a fan fiction staged, um, that might be your best bet for it. Just uh, The only way I would recommend is if you're fascinated to see how absolutely wrong a sequel to a stage production can go. Because we've seen plenty of like bad sequels to like films and whatnot. I don't think I've ever seen quite as bad like a sequel to a stage show. No. Not in this particular way. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think there one exists. If it no. does, I don't want to see it. I don't want to see anything worse than this. I mean, Andrew Lloyd Webber just innovating more and more as time goes on. He hasn't lost a step in innovating something, even if for the worse. Yeah, Jesus. Uh, but that is the end of our media discussion here. Uh, though we're you know going to do some uh, rollout here. We're going to read some feedback and then uh, announce what our uh, next month's bonus podcast will be. Uh, but just briefly, uh, some shout-outs to uh, patrons uh, who have uh, contributed some feedback. Uh, first, James Rodriguez on our Top 10 uh, Alien Creatures bonus podcast from last month uh, says, Glad to see Stitch got a mention. Love that little abomination. Um, and then Jonathan Haptimikhail has this to say about, uh, in reference to our Prey on the Edge of Relevance, where he says, Thanks for the shout-outs. Uh, Prey is easily the best Predator sequel, and I hope the success of Prey inspires more films in different time periods, because I still want Pirates versus a Predator. Yeah. And I did actually want to have a bit of a postscript to the Prey thing, because mild spoilers if you haven't seen Prey yet, everybody out there. Uh, but we had the whole issue with the pistol. Mm-hmm. 
that we were talking about uh, in that on the edge of relevance. And I wanted to give a shout out to a previous guest of ours, Aaron Brady. I brought up the whole issue we had where they had the pistol from Predator 2, and I'm like, oh, does that mean that they get hunted down or whatever? And she basically brought up the fact that um, the way that uh, the Comanche are done in the credit drawings, it's implied that they give the pistol back to the Predators once they arrive, and perhaps like I have a respect thing. And also, in Predator 2, they do establish the fact that if you've killed a Predator, you're considered like a true warrior. So there wouldn't really be that much conflict as much. It's just like a sign of respect. No, I still think it's fucking stupid. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that that version, I think. No, that makes it better. That makes it better. It. Yeah. Yeah. That makes it better. Like, it's easier to swallow that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we want to thank, obviously, uh, those patrons uh, who contribute the feedback. And, of course, to all of our patrons out there, we really appreciate uh, your dollar or more, depending on what you contribute, uh, helps out the show quite a lot. It really uh, keeps the lights on. Yeah, thanks, you fucks. Foxies. You foxy people. Yeah. Foxy, foxy uh, people. And so now, Adam, we should tease uh, that for next month uh, in sort of the the weird rotation we're, we're doing. We are going to be doing another audio commentary, and we were kind of like hard up to like, what do we do for this necessarily? But you brilliantly came up with a suggestion, so I want you to announce what movie we're we doing audio commentary for next month, Adam. We are doing one of the most famous, like, what the fuck, balloon budgeted movies, uh, maybe ever. We are doing the action sci-fi movie from 1995, Kevin Costner in Waterworld. Yes, Waterworld. So much to talk about. Such a, a fascinating relic of 1995. Uh, that'll be a lot of fun to talk about extensively. And you'll get to hear us talk along with the movie next time. Well, and on that note, everybody, uh, it is time that we uh, close the curtain and we did our bows. Adam, let's do our bows. Oh, thank you. Oh, 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 is this, the, is this the, the, the inter-equal between Love Never Dies and Phantom of the Opera? Is that what you're doing right now? <laughs> no, no. My trousers have become taut. <laughs> oh, God, get those roses from the crowd away from him. What will he do? No. <laughs>